Section 27 of Knickerbocker's History of New York, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. Knickerbocker's History of New York, Volume 2, by Washington Irving. Book 7. Containing the third part of the reign of Peter the Headstrong, his troubles with the British nation, and the decline and fall of the Dutch dynasty. Chapter 1. The history of the reign of Peter Stuyvesant furnishes an edifying picture of the cares and vexations inseparable from sovereignty, and a solemn warning to all who are ambitious of attaining the seat of honor. Though returning in triumph and crowned with victory, his exultation was checked on observing the abuses which had sprung up in New Amsterdam during his short absence. His walking staff, which he had sent home to act as his vice-regent, had, it is true, kept his council chamber in order, the councillors eyeing it with awe as it lay in grim repose upon the table, and smoking their pipes in silence, but its control extended not out of doors. The populace, unfortunately, had had too much their own way under the slack though fitful reign of William the Testy, and though upon the accession of Peter Stuyvesant they had felt, with the instinctive perception which mobs as well as cattle possess, that the reins of government had passed into stronger hands, yet could they not help fretting and chafing and champing upon the bit in restive silence scarcely therefore had he departed on his expedition against the swedes than the whole factions of william keith's reign had again thrust their heads above water pothouse meetings were again held to discuss the state of the nation where cobblers tinkers and tailors the self-dubbed friends of the people once more felt themselves inspired with the gift of legislation and undertook to lecture on every movement of government now as Peter Stuyvesant had a singular inclination to govern the province by his individual will, his first move on his return was to put a stop to this gratuitous legislation. Accordingly, one evening, when an inspired cobbler was holding forth to an assemblage of the kind, the intrepid Peter suddenly made his appearance with his ominous walking staff in his hand, and a countenance sufficient to petrify a millstone. The whole meeting was thrown into confusion. The orators stood aghast, with open mouth and trembling knees, while horror, tyranny, liberty, rights, taxes, death, destruction, and a host of other patriotic phrases were bolted forth before he had time to close his lips. Peter took no notice of the skulking throng, but strode up to the brawling, bully ruffian, and pulling out a huge silver watch, which might have served in times of yore as a town clock and which is still retained by his descendants as a family curiosity requested the orator to mend it and set it going the orator humbly confessed it was utterly out of his power as he was unacquainted with the nature of its construction nay but said peter try your ingenuity man you see all the springs and wheels and how easily the clumsiest hand may stop it and pull it to pieces and why should it not be equally easy to regulate as to stop it the orator declared that his trade was wholly different, that he was a poor cobbler, 
and had never meddled with a watch in his life that there were men skilled in the art whose business it was to attend to those matters but for his part he should only mar the workmanship and put the whole in confusion why hark ye master of mine cried peter turning suddenly upon him with a countenance that almost petrified the patcher of shoes into a perfect lapstone dost thou pretend to meddle with the movements of government to regulate and correct and patch and cobble a complicated machine the principles of which are above thy comprehension and its simplest operations too subtle for thy understanding when thou canst not correct a trifling error in a common piece of mechanism the whole mystery of which is open to thy inspection hence with thee to the leather and stone which are emblems of thy head cobble thy shoes and confine thyself to the vocation for which heaven has fitted thee but elevating his voice till it made the welkin ring if ever i catch thee or any of thy tribe meddling again with affairs of government by st nicholas but i'll have every mother's bastard of ye flayed alive and your hide stretched for drumheads that ye may thenceforth make a noise to some purpose this threat and the tremendous voice in which it was uttered caused the whole multitude to quake with fear the hair of the orator rose on his head like his own swine's bristles and not a knight of the thimble present but his heart died within him and he felt as though he could have barely escaped through the eye of a needle the assembly dispersed in silent consternation the pseudo-statesmen who had hitherto undertaken to regulate public affairs were now fain to stay at home hold their tongues and take care of their families and party feuds died away to such a degree that many thriving keepers of taverns and dram-shops were utterly ruined for want of business but though this measure produced the desired effect in putting an extinguisher on the new lights just brightening up yet did it tend to injure the popularity of the great peter with the thinking part of the community that is to say that part which think for others instead of for themselves or in other words who attend to everybody's business but their own these accused the old governor of being highly aristocratical and in truth there seems to have been some ground for such an accusation for he carried himself with a lofty soldier-like air and was somewhat particular in his dress appearing when not in uniform in rich apparel of the antique flaundish cut and was especially noted for having his sound leg which was a very comely one always arrayed in a red stocking and high-heeled shoe just as he often dispensed in the primitive patriarchal way seated on the step before the door under the shade of a great buttonwood tree but all visits of form and state were received with something of court ceremony in the best parlor where antony the trumpeter officiated as high chamberlain on public occasions he appeared with great pomp of equipage and always rode to church in a yellow wagon with flaming red wheels these symptoms of state and ceremony as we have hinted were much caviled at by the thinking and talking part of the community they had been accustomed to find easy access to their former governors and in particular had lived on terms of extreme intimacy with william the testy and they accused peter stuyvesant of assuming too much dignity and reserve and of wrapping himself in mystery others however have pretended to discover in all this a shrewd policy on the part of the old governor it is certainly of the first importance say they that a country should be governed by wise men 
but then it is almost equally important that people should think them wise, for this belief alone can produce willing subordination. To keep up, however, this desirable confidence in rulers, the people should be allowed to see as little of them as possible. It is the mystery which envelops great men that gives them half their greatness. There is a kind of superstitious reverence for office, which leads us to exaggerate the merits of the occupant, and to suppose that he must be wiser than common men. He, however, who gains access to cabinets, soon finds out by what foolishness the world is governed. He finds that there is quackery in legislation, as in everything else, that rulers have their whims and errors, as well as other men, and are not so wonderfully superior as he had imagined since even he may occasionally confute them in argument. Thus awe subsides into confidence. Confidence inspires familiarity, and familiarity produces contempt. Such was the case, say they, with William the Testy. By making himself too easy of access, he enabled every scrub politician to measure wits with him, and to find out the true dimensions, not only of his person, but of his mind. And thus it was that, by being familiarly scanned, he was discovered to be a very little man. Peter Stuyvesant, on the contrary, say they, by conducting himself with dignity and loftiness, was looked up to with great reverence. As he never gave his reasons for anything he did, the public gave him credit for very profound ones. Every movement, however intrinsically unimportant, was a matter of speculation, and his very red stockings excited some respect as being different from the stockings of other men. Another charge against Peter Stuyvesant was that he had a great leaning in favor of the patricians, and, indeed, in his time rose many of those mighty Dutch families which have taken such vigorous root and branched out so luxuriantly in our state. Some, to be sure, were of earlier date, such as the Van Cortlands, the Van Zants, the Ten Brocks, the Hardenbrocks, and others of Pavonian renown, who gloried in the title of discoverers, from having been engaged in the nautical expedition from Communepaw, in which they so heroically braved the terrors of Hellgate and Buttermilk Channel, and discovered a site for New Amsterdam. Others claimed to themselves the appellation of conquerors, from their gallant achievements in New Sweden, and their victory over the Yankees at Oyster Bay such was that list of warlike worthies heretofore enumerated beginning with the van wicks the van dykes and the ten eyks and extending to the rutgers the bensons the brinkerhoffs and the schemmerhorns a role equal to the doomsday book of william the conqueror and establishing the heroic origin of many an ancient aristocratical dutch family these after all are the only legitimate nobility and lords of the soil these are the real beavers of the Manhattos, and much does it grieve me in modern days to see them elbowed aside by foreign invaders, and more especially by those ingenuous people, the sons of the pilgrims, who out-bargain them in the market, out-speculate them on the exchange, out-top them in fortune, and run up mushroom palaces so high that the tallest Dutch family mansion has not wind enough left for its weathercock. In the proud days of Peter Stuyvesant, however the good old dutch aristocracy loomed out in all its grandeur the burly burgher in round-crowned flanderish hat with brim of vast circumference and portly gabardine and bulbous multiplicity of breeches sat on his stoop 
and smoked his pipe in lordly silence nor did it ever enter his brain that the active restless yankee whom he saw through his half-shut eyes worrying about in dog-day heat ever intent on the main chance was one day to usurp control over these goodly dutch domains already however the races regarded each other with disparaging eyes the yankees sneeringly spoke of the round-crowned burghers of the manhattoes as the copperheads while the latter glorying in their own nether rotundity and observing the slack galligaskins of their rivals flapping like an empty sail against the mast retorted upon them with the opprobrious appellation of platter breeches End of section twenty seven. Recording by Greg Giordano. Newport Ritchie, Florida.